following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So tonight's topic is the five hindrances. And the five hindrances. And the guided meditation that we started with was an exploration or an invitation uh, to start to notice um, what are referred as uh, the, is referred to as the five hindrances, and um, I'm going to start with a quote from Ajahn Chah because I know Mark has been um, using uh, food for the heart for quite some time, so I thought it was appropriate to uh, read something from Ajahn Chah about this. And for those of you that don't know who Ajahn Chah is, Ajahn Chah is one of um, uh, the uh, meditation masters in our tradition who was the teacher of many of our teachers uh, here in the West. And um, so this is what he had to say about the hindrances. The so-called hindrances are the things we must study. Whenever we sit the mind immediately goes running off. We follow it and try to bring it back and observe it once more. Then it goes off again. This is what you're supposed to be studying. Most people refuse to learn their lessons from nature. Like a naughty schoolboy or schoolgirl who refuses to do his or her homework. They don't want to see the mind changing. But then how are you going to develop wisdom? So that was uh, Ajahn Chah's take on the importance of the hindrances. This is um, a much shorter uh, quote from uh, Gil Fronsdale. And Gil Fronsdale is uh, one of the more senior uh, contemporary Western Vipassana teachers. And this is what he has to say. He says that the hindrances are a little bit like those bumper stickers that we see from time to time that say, I stop for wildlife or I stop for whatever, except for that when we're uh, studying and working with the mind, the bumper sticker becomes, I stop for the hindrances. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on. And in particular, I'm going to... um, walk through each of them and talk about how they show up in practice, how they also show up in uh, the outside world, and how to work with them. So both Ajahn Chah and Gil are talking about really studying, getting to know these hindrances, and slowing down. It's not something that we try to just rush past uh, or uh, toss away. We actually need to spend some time investigating these states of mind, because they really are, uh, as is described in the suttas, they are what slow us down in our uh, path of purifying uh, the heart and mind. They are obstructions, and we need to spend time to really investigate how they arise, what they are, what they feel like, and how they disappear. So the definition uh, from uh, the original text and in the uh, language of the Buddha, which is Pali, the the term for the hindrances is actually best translated as covering. So it's not so much an obstacle or an impediment, it's actually a covering over of. And I think that that is really uh, illuminating, because what that's pointing at or what that's suggesting is that there's a natural uh, clarity, a natural peace or stillness of the mind, but then something covers it up, something comes in and obscures it. So that implies that the underlying stillness or clarity or peace is still there. It's just been covered. So our task then is to say, well, how has it been covered and how can we uncover it? So what are the five hindrances? The five hindrances are sensual desire, which I'll explain in a little bit, ill will. They are sloth and torpor. They are restlessness and worry, and they are doubt. 
So you might say, well, wait a minute, that's more than five. I actually, I think that's quite a bit more than five. Well, they're often paired like that because they're uh, seen as sometimes referring to uh, the body or a mental state. So sometimes sloth or torpor is referring either to the body or to the mental state. Other times they're presented because they come mostly as a pair. So they're thought of as one unit. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other takes on it based on the commentaries. But essentially... Uh, they are always presented together. So there was five. Uh, what I'd like to do is actually introduce a very simple mnemonic. This is one that I learned uh, many years ago, and I think it's quite helpful. So how do you remember these five uh, hindrances? Well, there really are uh, movements of the mind, or as I was saying, they're covering up. And so when the mind gets covered up, it's, it's moved or something's happened to it. So if we start with a clear, stable, present mind as sort of the center, the first one, the sensual desire, is the mind moving out and grabbing onto something. So if we're in home base, the mind moves out and grabs. So that's sensual desire. If uh, the mind is moving towards ill will, it's as though the mind moves back and almost starts to blame, starts to wish ill will, or has some hostility. And so the mind is actually moving back, and it's got some aversion in it. And so that's that's the opposite movement. So the central desire is going out and grabbing. The other one is moving back. Now, what about um, sloth and torpor? Well, sloth and torpor is the movement of the mind down. And you can almost think of it as though it's this uh, concave um, sort of dip in the earth. And it's you can imagine as though if you were taking um, a drop of water or a marble and you put it on either uh, lip, it would just sink immediately down into the center of this dip. And that's essentially sloth and torpor. What happens is the mind and the body just sinks down, and it keeps getting stuck. So that's the movement of the mind downwards towards sloth and torpor. Now, what about restlessness and worry? Well, that's the opposite. The mind moves up, and it's as though it were a convex shape, so that if you were taking the same drop of water or the same marble, you put it there and it immediately goes off. No matter how much you try, the mind is moving off. Now what about doubt? Well, doubt comes back into the center, but it shakes. So it's this sense of wavering, of uncertainty, of a lack of confidence, and that's the last movement. So if you take nothing away from this talk tonight, think about the hand movements themselves, because really it is the movement of the mind. It's the going out and grabbing. It's the coming back and sort of uh, the judging or the aversion or the ill will. It's the movement down where things sink into the dip, which is the sloth and torpor. It's the movement up where when you play something and it immediately falls off, it can't stay. Or it's that wavering or quivering of the mind in doubt. So those are, uh, that. well, to me, that's the best encapsulation of the five hindrances. So I'm going to actually take each of them in turn, and we're going to go a little bit deeper, and I'll explain what they are. Uh, I'll explain also uh, just from uh, my own sort of sense of where they show up in the world, because they don't only just show up in our practice, they also show up externally. They can show up with uh, societies, with cultures, with entire groups of individuals. So I'll talk a little bit about that, and then I'll talk about how to work with it. How do you actually work with these states, and and what does that look like? So let's start with sensual desire. So how does this show up in our practice? Well, in our practice, sensual desire is essentially when the mind is moving to one of the five sense doors. So it's, it's going out from its home base, which is if the mind is resting in the mind and it's content and there's no movement and it's still, then the mind doesn't have any need to go anywhere. But for some reason, something attracts the mind, and so it moves out to one of the sense doors. It moves out to perhaps there's a, you know, a pleasing, uh, beautiful object in the room, and you go, ooh, that's really beautiful. I really like that. Or it might move to a sensation in the body. It might move to a, oh, okay, I, you know, that feels, if I move like that a little bit and I just like that, oh, that, that's perfect. The mind has moved again, thinking that happiness and contentment is somewhere at one of the five sense doors. 
It can also just be uh, the rumination or thoughts about uh, the external world. So you can have thoughts about, boy, if the sound of all the traffic outside would simply quiet down, then I would be able to be really concentrated and really still. Well, the mind's just moved again. It's moved into thought about the external world. It's not staying with its own direct experience, so it's moved again. And that really is the uh, the trap of sensual desire, which is the mind has convinced itself that the um, creature comforts or something external to itself is going to be the basis for contentment and happiness and wisdom and all those other qualities that we are trying to deeply cultivate. So how does this show up in uh, the external world? Well, I think um, we can look at, uh, for example, the cosmetics and beauty industry. And we have an entire industry that has products and surgical procedures and everything else that's based around this idea if if only I had, if only I looked like, if only I didn't look like. And um, it's a billion, billion dollar industry. I mean, there's a lot of money in the cosmetic and beauty industry. And so we can see this in the external world as really um, there's this fascination with um, either form of the body or some other form, uh, a beautiful you know, whatever it might be, an image of another person. And uh, we get trapped by that. The mind gets trapped and think, thinks that that's what it needs for uh, its real deep satisfaction. What I find that's really interesting about sensual desire is that if you investigate it and you get really close, and I invite everybody to do this, whenever you find the movement of the mind to going to one of the sense doors, really look close and uh, in my own experience, what I found is that there is a, um, a kernel of a positive mental state that is there, but it's covered up, it's misdirected, or it's somewhat uh, not quite clear, it's been distorted in some way. And so what is that positive mental state? Well, that positive mental state is interest, or it's a desire uh, to act, and we can think about this for our own basic uh, desire or intention to practice. When we have the interest or the desire to practice, that's quite wholesome. That's in uh, the Pali word for it is chanda. And that's where we have this wholesome aspiration that actually motivates us to practice and, um, and tells us that, yes, there is some value in developing these qualities of heart and mind. So when it's present in the form of a hindrance, it's actually being directed towards not some wholesome, deeper wisdom. It's being directed at a much more surface level. It's being directed at the idea that um, if I uh, experience some immediate pleasure, then that's going to lead to long-term happiness, contentment, peace, or whatever it might be. But in fact, we all know that that's a false promise. We know that when we get what we want, things change or we become dissatisfied because we got what we wanted. And so then the mind becomes disillusioned again. So how do we then work with this? If we know that the kernel of a wholesome state or the kernel of wisdom is there in this form of interest, well, we can actually start to redirect that interest. And so I uh, wrote down some of the ways that um, our uh, appear in the texts and and from other practitioners. There, just to say, there are many, and I'm not going to go over all of them. What I've tried to do is condense them into some that I think are immediately useful and practical. So, one way of redirecting uh, the interest is to look at contentment. See if you can find contentment in the moment. See if you can tune into the idea that what you have is already enough. That what is right here is enough. And can you become interested in this idea of contentment? And that's what will loosen some of that grasping, that somehow I have to go somewhere else. Actually, it's right here. You can also redirect the interest, uh, the interest to uh, impermanence. So reflecting on the fact that if you get what you want, are you going to be truly happy? Or reflecting on the fact 
uh, of past occurrences when you had some really strong desire that you thought, this is it. If I get this thing, I'm going to finally have it, whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. And then you have that. What was your experience after that? So you reflect on it, and you reflect that things change. You reflect that there's nothing in the external world that is constant. And so when we see that, that loosens the attachment again, because we see that even if we grasp and hold on tight, it's going to change, and it's impermanent. We can also take interest in the mind state itself. And there's that mind state of peace is out there, it's not in here. And so the interest is then being directed at the idea of, can I find peace in here? Can I find peace somewhere in my immediate experience? And so we can reorient the mind and take that interest that was directed at some sensual desire and point it at a deeper wisdom. That's what we're doing. We're redirecting it towards a deeper wisdom. So those are just some of the uh, sort of few ways to work with sensual desire. So what about ill will? Well, in practice, uh, ill will, as I mentioned, is the opposite movement of the mind. It's sort of this latching on to thoughts or to emotions or even to uh, words or actions that are hostile, uh, that are unkind, um, that have some bitterness, uh, that really are, it's almost as though it's this um, projection either to someone external to us and saying, well, you know, that person is... I can't believe what they did. There's no way. And we harbor this real rigidity and closed, uh, this closed heart towards another person, or it can be towards ourselves. We can have this sense of being really bitter and judgmental towards ourselves. So that's ill will as it shows up often in our practice. And where do we see that most uh, prominently in the outside world? I think we see that most prominently right now in our political discourse. We have this uh, uh, conversation that's going on right now where um, both sides are characterizing the other in uh, a sense of um, real animosity, a sense of gamesmanship, a sense of bitterness towards the injustice that's been uh, uh, wrought upon uh, the other side. Uh, and it's this idea of bitterness towards the other. So that's one area. I would also say that we see it in the, the isms. There are so many isms that we have. Racism, sexism, so many isms. And we see it in hate crimes. That really is this manifestation of ill will in the external world. And we know that it is quite potent and quite dangerous. And we need to learn how to work with it within ourselves so that we can be that agent of transformation in the outside world. So how do we work with it? Well, just like sensual desire, you can investigate ill will quite closely. And what I would suggest, and you can again see, this is all about seeing for yourself, that when you get really close to ill will, you'll see that there is a one-pointedness in ill will that there is this wholesome factor of the mind being very concentrated and being very one-pointed, but that one-pointedness is directed at fault. It's directed at some um, sense of uh, ill will for another. It's focused on not a wholesome state or a wholesome quality. So if we know that there is this one-pointedness quality, which is being covered over or obscured, that's still present, we can work with that one-pointedness. Well, how do we work with it? What do we do with the one-pointedness? Well, we can take that concentration or one-pointedness of mind, and we can direct it at, um, for example, the body, noticing how the body feels, noticing the state of anger or ill will within ourselves, and the effect that it has on our body. How are we feeling when we are in that state? What effect is it having on our cardiovascular system? We can touch into that. We can take that one-pointedness and really feel that. 
We can also take the one-pointedness and look deeply at root causes. So we can orient it and start to really investigate. And we may find that the hostility is coming from not a wish to really harm another person, but it's coming from this sense of I'm not being understood, I'm not being heard, um, or I don't have a voice. It can also be um, an environment. We know the impact of uh, the environment on our states of mind and our states of consciousness. So if we are in an environment that has... Uh, a lot of hostility and ill will, we can take that same one-pointedness and notice that, and notice that that's what's coloring and affecting our own mind. And lastly, which I think uh, is a really powerful practice, is we can take that one-pointedness and we can direct it at a wholesome state. We can direct it towards metta, or unconditional friendliness. So we can take that collectedness and that one-pointedness of mind and start to generate, through the practice of metta, kindness. And as we know, anger will never heal anger. It's love that will heal anger. And that's what we're doing when we direct the one-pointedness towards this wholesome quality of metta or unconditional friendliness and kindness. And we can really transform or transmute um, that hindrance or that mental state. So those, again, are some of the ways um, that I would suggest that are immediately available and very practical for working with this hindrance of ill will. So what about sloth and torpor? That's the next one. So sloth and torpor, I think we all have a sense of that because I, I know from my own experience in um, the, uh, this tradition that there can be a real sleepiness, that when we close our eyes, there's quite a bit of nodding, and then there's an immediate sort of jolting up. And so I think we all have some sense of this uh, sloth and torpor, and it can be uh, felt as a real heaviness or sleepiness in the body, it can be felt as a dullness or a fogginess in the mind. Sometimes it's described as uh, the ooze. It's, uh, some teachers refer to it as the sinking mind, where you almost slip down into this ooze or something that feels like molasses, where you can't quite, you feel confined and the mind can't get out of it. So where do we see this in the outside world? Well, I would suggest that we see this in the outside world in a couple of places. One, I would say that we see it in our cultural norm of overwhelming and overworking uh, ourselves. So that when we stack up all of these activities and this work and we push ourselves beyond the natural limits of the body, we get exhausted and then we crash. And there's that moment of a crash. So whether you're a student and you've just been, you know, going full bore through the semester and then you cram for your final and then you crash, or whether you're out in the working world and you're working and you have an intense project or something where there's a lot of pressure coming in from work, then you have those moments where you're pushed, pushed past the natural point of uh, exhaustion and you collapse and you crash. And in that moment of crashing, you really have a sense of the mind being foggy, of the body being uh, heavy and tired, and perhaps even the body being sick. I mean, I think we all have that experience of being sick where we pushed ourselves so far that we actually uh, became sick. So that's one area where I would suggest that we see it in the outside world. I would also suggest that we see it uh, in our food industry. We see it with packaged food. So how does that relate to sloth and torpor? Well, I would argue that it relates to sloth and torpor because the packaged foods that we eat are high in salt, sugar, and fat. And we know from a physiological standpoint that when we consume diets that are only full of salt, sugar, and fat, it will tend to make the body sluggish and it will make the mind dull. So we can see this also as a manifestation of sloth and torpor and really tuning into what are the nutrients that we are taking into the body that promote a brightness or an alertness. So what happens when you investigate sloth and torpor really closely? What, what do you see? I've mentioned with these other 
hindrance is that there's a kernel of a wholesome state that's present. Well, I would suggest, and again, see for yourself, that when you really look at sloth and torpor, what you're seeing is a state of calm and tranquility, that there is some calmness and tranquility, but it's out of balance. There's not enough energy in the system to keep the alertness and the awareness bright. And so what happens is that calm and tranquility sinks, and it drops down into sleepiness, or it falls off into a state of real dullness. So how do we work with that? If we know that there's some calmness and tranquility, but yet the energy is a little bit out of balance, then that offers some very practical strategies. We can raise the energy, and I think we know how to do this intuitively. I uh, offered one practical suggestion in the guided meditation. It was to open your eyes. Just opening your eyes can bring more energy into your awareness, and it can brighten the mind a little bit. You can also refine your attention, so get really close to whatever your object is and really investigate it. And when you refine it and you bring in curiosity and investigation, that again brightens the mind. It brings energy into the awareness, and it brings a certain alertness that is lacking when we're in sloth and torpor. You can stand up. That's I didn't see anybody uh, tonight, at least I wasn't checking too carefully, that stood up, but you can do that. You can stand up, and that will bring energy back into the system. You can also bring in a questioning or investigating factor. This is another way that's talked about of bringing in energy and brightening the mind. So you can just ask yourself a question. And I used that same invocation several times in the guided meditation of notice the mind now. What's happening? Where is the mind? Did the mind move? Is the mind still with the object? We can bring in that investigative factor and we can start to um, brighten the awareness and the alertness with that simple, gentle, kind questioning of what is happening right now. We can also use tools like counting the breath with a very soft, whisper-like note, one, two. And if we do that, we're also building inertia and we're building energy again. So we're raising the mind out of the sloth and torpor. We can do walking meditation. So we can say, well, I, you know, I tried. Uh, just the mind is continuing to sink and I can't get out of it. Well, then you can stop the formal sitting meditation and you can do walking meditation. That's another way that brings energy back in. Uh, there's one that I um, I don't know that is often talked about, but I like to uh, to offer it because I found it tremendously useful in my practice. And it's a simple modulation of breathing. So normally, when we're practicing, we we don't alter or change the breath. We're just noticing. We're watching it because we're developing that insight. We're developing that momentary awareness that's watching change. But we can actually take. Uh, an intentional change or modify the breath that will brighten the mind. So how do you do this? Well, one way you can do this is on an inhale. If you just inhale naturally, you don't have to take any deep breath, you can pause for a moment at the top of the inhale and hold the breath. So you hold it, you deliberately pause for a little bit, and then you exhale. And then the inhale flows naturally after the exhale. You come up to the top of the inhale and you pause again. And when you do that, you're actually engaging the nervous system and you're bringing some energy into the body. So that's a very simple uh, uh, technique that you can experiment with and try and see if it's useful. So what about restlessness and worry? How does this uh, work? How does it show up? Well, I would say that in practice, the way that we see it <clears throat> is it's either agitation of the body or it's agitation of the mind. So for the body, it's a sense of never being able to quite settle. There's either this fidgeting or this movement, or there might even be an impulse to bolt. i got to get out of here right now. And so we can have that impulse to just move quickly. And it comes up. I mean, it'll come, you know, if it hasn't come up in your practice, it probably will. And I hear a lot of laughter, which tells me that it's probably come up before. So that is uh, agitation of the body. Well, what about agitation of the mind? Well, I think 
we also have a very intuitive sense. There's no magic here. It's this uh, quality of the spinning mind, as though we're just, the wheels are turning and turning and turning and turning and turning, and we know that they're turning and turning and turning, but we can't stop them. They just seem to keep going. No matter what we do, they just turn and we're ruminating and we're caught in this endless spinning of our wheels. And it can be about uh, particular thoughts. It can be a worry about the future. It could even be uh, a regret or remorse about something that we've done in the past. And we're stuck on it. And we're really just churning and spinning. So where do we see this uh, in the external world? Where do we see this in our culture? Well, I would say that we see it in a lot of ways. And I think that this is sort of the default mode for us in this modern world, is the state of restlessness and worry. I would say that we see it in our endless to-do lists, those lists that we always make that never seem to end, and we never cross everything off. We just keep adding to them, and there's a sense of angst that builds. It's almost like an emotional depth charge that's right underneath the to-do, and it keeps building and building. I'd say that we also see it in um, our 24-7 connectivity that we are constantly plugged in, we're bombarded by stimulation. We have all of these amazing things that connect us in new ways, but they also stir up the mind. They agitate it, and they are actually enhancing this state of restlessness and worry. It's also constant multitasking. So how many people uh, have had the experience of eating while doing something else? Right. And, uh, you know, in some places, that's the norm. You're supposed to eat and do something else. So that's another example of where we see this in our culture and our external world. So what happens when you really investigate restlessness and worry? What's the positive side or what's that wholesome kernel that's present there? Well, I would argue that it's energy. Energy in of itself is a very useful thing. But with restlessness and worry, it's out of balance. So there's an excess energy in the system. And we don't have enough calming or tranquility. So the analogy is a little bit like if you think of gas particles, and they're just this entropy of gas particles bouncing all around. That's sort of like restlessness and worry. They're just chaotic. As opposed to uh, water when it's in its liquid form. So you can think of water in its gas form where it's bouncing all around and it's a vapor. And you can think of it as uh, in its water form where in a stream it's collected and there's actually uh, more stillness and it's flowing. It's still moving, but it's gathered. It's not nearly as erratic or chaotic uh, as water in the vapor form. So that's a little bit like uh, this quality of restlessness and worry. And that's the energy that I'm talking about, that there, it's almost a different phase, right? So we're phase shifting. And so how do we actually work with that? How do we bring down the energy in the system? Well, I'll give you a few suggestions. These are ones that um, I use quite often. One of them is to put our attention somewhere else, out of the thinking and worrying, ruminating mind. And where would we put it? Well, I would suggest that we can put it with the breath. We can rest it with the waves of the in-breath and the out-breath. I would also suggest that we can put it with a sense of being connected to the earth. So I also invited that at the beginning of the guided meditation. Because when we connect with something that's larger, when we feel that we're grounded and we're connected to the earth, we then have access to this wider support network. We have all of a sudden this ground, which is firm, that can hold anything, no matter what's happening. The earth doesn't care if we're restless and worried. It's still there. It's still pushing back against us and offering us support. So we can tune into with our attention and actually move our attention out of the ruminating, worrying mind and put it down into the contact points. And there's some very powerful stories we know. We know of that the night of the Buddha's enlightenment he touched the earth. So there's there's a real power in grounding and connecting, and that's some of what we're doing. So it's almost like a lightning rod. We're bringing the energy down into a larger base. We can also investigate the root cause. So we can look at and see if what's being shown as this excess energy is being fed by something else. It might be a fear or regret about a prior uh, unskillful action. 
And that's actually what's feeding this agitation. And if we see the root cause, we then can discern, is it something that I can take action with, or is it something that I can't take action with? And when we discern that, if it's something that we have the ability to act on, we act on it. And then we don't have to worry about it anymore. If it's something that we cannot act on, then we recognize that it's beyond our control, and we can drop back and just rest with the feeling. So we don't have to stay in that constant discursive mind because we're dropping back into the feeling of what that feels like, the remorse of that. There's nothing that we can do, so there's nothing to be gained by heaping on guilt. But yet when we drop out of that worrying or that discursive mind, again, we're taking energy out of the system. We can also use that same uh, mini breath exercise that I just mentioned, but in reverse. So how would we do that? Well, in this case, so we would have the inhale, and then we would have the exhale, but at the end of the exhale, we pause. So we hold for just a moment at the end of the exhale, and then we inhale, and then we exhale naturally, pause, and that's lowering, that's grounding. So again, we're engaging the nervous system once again, so we can bring energy out of the system. Lastly, I would suggest that uh, when we do this in our life anyways, we can seek wise counsel. We can seek it from friends. We can seek it from uh, other wise individuals that we have experienced to be wise before, and we can say, I really need some advice here. There's this restlessness, this worry, this agitation, and that can be reflected back of, oh, that's simply restlessness and worry. Don't worry about it. Or let me help you work through that. And that then again takes the energy out of the system. So the last of the hindrances. This is doubt. And I would say that doubt is one of the most precarious and slippery of the hindrances. You can judge for yourself. How does this show up? Well, in practice, doubt shows up as uncertainty, indecision, a lack of confidence in the practice, in teachings that we've heard, in teachers. It can even be in oneself. And that can be a sense of we're not able to do something. We have this belief of an inability. Or we have a sense of being unworthy. That also is a manifestation of doubt. So where does this show up in our culture and our external world? I would suggest that we see this in global warming and the state of our planet. I would say that collectively we're trapped in indecision. We have a certain blasé attitude that we need more verifiable data. We need something more concrete that points to an absolute certainty that you know, the temperatures are rising, and we've seen this, how there's been inaction and there's been indecision and in how we address this change. And that is a form of doubt. So what happens when you look really closely at doubt? What is it that might be that wholesome kernel that we can draw upon? There's, is there something in doubt that's there? Well, I would invite you to look again for yourself and see what's there. I would offer that what you will find is a factor of investigation. So doubt does have this quality of questioning, of investigating. But what that's doing is it's operating when it's a hindrance. It's in service of inaction, of giving up, of indifference, of uh, who cares, or I can't do anything about this. And so that questioning is not in service of some other deeper understanding. It's not in service of inspiring us to take action. It's not in service of um, trying to gather um, enough uh, information and to gather enough um, knowledge to realize what it is that we can change ourselves, even if it's a small difference. 
And that's when this kernel of investigation can be redirected. It can be taken away from the sense of uh, inaction or always giving up right before the moment of commitment where we get really close to committing to something and then we just go, no, I'm not going to do that. That's also a manifestation of doubt. So how do we take this investigative factor and redirect it in skillful ways? Well, I would offer that we can direct it to the feeling of doubt itself. What is the feeling? And I'm sure many of you can relate to this, but if you try to think your way out of doubt, if you try to reason your way out of doubt, good luck. (laughs) I haven't found a way to successfully do that yet to really sit there and reason, because part of what doubt is doing is it's introducing endless questions, question after question after question. So we can drop out of that reasoning or logical space and drop into the emotional space, and we can rest with the uncomfortableness of doubt. We can rest with the feeling of uncertainty. What is that like to really stay with that and to not move, to not be driven to take an action out of it? Another way that we can uh, redirect this investigative factor is to break down the source of our doubt into smaller chunks. So, for example, if we're struggling with our practice, then we can break down our doubt about whether we can do it to just saying, can I commit to one intentional breath a day? That's it. One intentional breath. And we start with that. We've just broken down the source of our doubt to something very concrete and simple that we know that we can do. So we shrink it. We can also apply that to an action. We, If we have a particular habit or pattern in our life that we're not particularly uh, proud of, and we're questioning that but we're not quite ready to commit to making a wholesale change, then can we take one small action and break it down again into something very concrete and manageable? And we can work with that. That's a way of bringing that investigative factor to break down this monolithic doubt into something that's manageable and workable. Another strategy of the investigating factor is to start to direct it towards uh, something inspiring in yourself. So investigate for yourself. What ability or skill uh, do I have that brings me a lot of joy, that brings me a lot of confidence, that is inspiring? But it's uplifting. And we all have that. We all do. We just have to investigate and find it. And if we can't find it in ourselves, if we try and we look and we look and we look and for whatever reason we just don't believe it's there, then as a last resort, direct it to somebody outside, somebody that inspires you, a role model, somebody else that you believe embodies or is uh, really living um, with whatever ability or with whatever um, issue that you're working with in your doubt, you can look external and find that inspiration. You can find it in somebody that's embodying some really deeper wisdom. And just like with um, the restlessness and worry, you can also seek wise counsel. That's another way of working with doubt. So we can do that from a friend or from a teacher, And we can have reflected back to us the, that's doubt. What you're working with is the uncomfortableness of uncertainty. You're working with this feeling of doubt. And that in of itself is a way to work through doubt. So in essence, the five hindrances are visitors to the mind. As I mentioned before, what they're really doing is they're covering up, they're obscuring the natural peace and clarity of the mind, And there's a wonderful analogy that's presented in the suttas for this, and I'll close with this. And this is what the Buddha had to say about um, the descriptions of the, uh, the five hindrances. He said that the natural peace and clarity of the mind is like a still, clear bowl of water, so that when you look into it, you accurately see your reflection, because the pool or the bowl of water is still, it's clear, and you see that mirroring back. So what is sensual desire? Well, sensual desire is like a bowl of water that's mixed with different colors. So you can imagine that each of the five senses are a different color, and they're being dropped with a little eyedropper into this bowl of water. 
so that when you look into it, you don't accurately see your reflection. You see a distortion. There's a coloring, something that's not quite accurate or true. That's sensual desire. What about ill will? Well, ill will is like a bowl of water that is boiling or bubbling over. So you can imagine peering into this bowl of boiling or bubbling water and trying to see your reflection accurately. You won't be able to see it. That's ill will. That's the quality of it. Sloth and torpor, I love this one, is like a bowl of water covered with algae and slime. <laughs> that's that ooze that I was talking about. It's sort of that we're sinking down. We're in the weeds. Um, restlessness and worry. It's like a bowl of water that is wind-ruffled and full of waves. So it's like the wind whipping across the surface, and it's just creating waves and disturbances on the surface. So when we look again to try to see our reflection, we don't see it. And then what about doubt? So doubt is like taking the bowl of water and imagining that it had some sediment in it, and we just stir it up, and we make it really muddy, so all of a sudden it gets cloudy, and it's really disturbed and agitated, and then we put it in the dark. Now we try to see our reflection. That's like doubt. So those are the five hindrances. It's part of human nature to experience these five hindrances. And it's not so much of getting rid of. It's really slowing down, studying, and getting to know each of these. Because there is a wisdom in them, as I was mentioning. There's always this kernel of wholesomeness that we can see and we can find. And when we work with those and the hindrances remove, we come back to that natural clarity, peace, and stillness of the mind. So are there any um, questions or comments? I would love to just hear. Yes. Yeah. I think it's my proposal. So I was 14 to take early retirement. I'm not 62. But I worked hard all my life. And I think that I don't think my parents still used to be. I always had to be tough And so I'm a valedictorian. And I was in the college class, top of graduate school. Yet, through all this, I never felt that I measured uh, mm. up. And uh, I've had to help my family out. I helped my parents out for 23 years. And now at 60, <coughs> I read two, three books at a time. Mm-hmm. I go to every movie I can see. I feel like maybe it's just hermit, I'm getting older. That I have to fit in as much of my life as I can, especially if you're going to die. Mm. And I have, I don't really feel, I also exercise an hour and 50 minutes five times a week. It feels good. But there's this pressure all the time to eat the right kind of food mm-hmm. and uh, drive the speed limit and it makes me angry when I try to speed limit. Anger. Yep. So, whatever I do, it just, I, I don't know. I feel this, and I don't watch TV, mm-hmm. hardly ever. Mm-hmm. And all my friends say, why don't you watch TV much? And, uh, why are you always going to the bathroom? Why are you always going to these plays? Why are you always going to these movies? Why can't you just sit down and be still? That's kind of why I came here. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sitting in still. Mm-hmm. And I'm always on. Fast forward. Mm-hmm. So how do you get that? <laughs> you feel like your your boulders run fast, but I don't really feel the rolling. It really makes me feel calm. Mm-hmm. And when I'm walking, uh, I do walking meditation. I do mm-hmm. good intentions toward everybody I meet. I don't say verbally. Mm-hmm. I was reading the book Loving Kindness that uh, was recommended. And you give more intentions to people that you meet. And we talk about Minnesota being Minnesota nice. So many people seem to be suffering. They'll put their heads down, mm. way down, and go a different direction. I just find that having worked in human resources, I find so. I guess I should understand that some people are shy. They're having a bad day. 
So I heard um, a, a, a lot in there, but I, I, heard, uh, I heard a question in there about how do you find that settling? How do you find, yeah. I'm 60, and I'm still, you know, my parents said you have to be a top student, but when I was six years old, they instilled in me all the kids that you had to be a top student, mm. and it was a real high pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think... I still have got to wait for it. Mm, yeah. And so... So, like, I, you know, it's like, I cannot... Uh, I feel like there's so many books to read, and I go to a bookstore. Mm. I sometimes overbuy, mm. and I have, like, 45 books mm-hmm. that I can read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll say, I'm going to get them someday, and then I'll buy another one. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, and when I was describing these five hindrances and, and, you know, listening to what you were just sharing, are there ones that come to the top of mind? I have my own uh, thoughts about that, but I want to hear which ones. I have doubts. You have doubts. Mm-hmm. Yes. From uh, two parents that said you were really strict. I'm agnostic, and I was raised strictly Catholic, and I was gay, and they more or less said, you know, you go to hell. Mm. That was another, another factor. And I mm. have two brothers that are devout Catholic that wouldn't talk to me. Mm. So that's, that's another factor, too. Mm. Yeah, so there's... Um, there, there is, yeah, no, but there's... But I think you're exactly right. I mean, you have an intuitive sense of... There's a sense of doubt, of questioning... Of uh, and it may be questioning uh, about uh, who you are because it was yeah. so influenced externally by what other people were telling you about who you had to be, right? And I've been with my partner for almost thirty-five years, mm-hmm. and a lot of my bro- I have eight brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. and most of them are divorced. Mm-hmm. They look at me and they say, "Oh, you're <laughs> <true."> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah." And there's another piece that I was hearing in there, which is I was hearing restlessness. Yes. So there's, it's actually a combination almost of two. Yes. It's this hindrance of restlessness and worry and doubt. And so part of that is, as I was mentioning before, when we have the restlessness or the worry, there's an increased amount of energy in the system, right? And so what we're doing is we're trying to bring the energy down if we can do that. And I, I think I kind of reached in my late 50s, I, I started to develop a little bit of existential angst. Mm-hmm. What is there after this world? Mm-hmm. And so I started reading these books by this author about the historical Jesus Christ. So I believe that Jesus Christ exists historically, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily believe he's a savior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, President of my alma mater team and my colleague that came to my house and was asking for a donation. Mm-hmm. And I told him what I felt. He was somewhat offended. He went out for lunch. Mm-hmm. He took the money. <laughs> of course. Uh, he said, you know, you know, that author, you shouldn't be reading the right Yeah. So again, I would say that that's another manifestation of this external force coming in and saying it's causing some doubt, right? Because it's it's influencing, it's coming in, it's causing you to question a little bit and to wonder. And, um, you know, the existential angst, that is uh, one of those unanswerable questions. How do we answer it, right? And so when we reflect on it and when we spend time on that, that is, again, furthering this energy of the restlessness or the worry because we we can't answer it so we are it's like the wind whipping across that uh, surface of the water creating those waves it just keeps whipping because there's well, you know it's better when the weather warms up <laughs> exactly and i would offer i would offer that the warmer weather is kindness yes. that it really is a deep sense of cultivating kindness and compassion for yourself and really taking some time to um, to feel that for yourself, to send it towards yourself, and to be in environments that are nourishing of that. Yeah. 
that really develop that kindness. And that's the warmer weather. I, that's my own riff on it, but that's what I would say. Yeah. So will the hindrances show up less if we spend more time in the <laughs> well, the way that it's uh, classically uh, understood is that um, there's there's two ways of um, uh, thinking about this. We can think about that in terms of uh, what's called concentration uh, meditation, which are the jhanas or the absorption. That's one area. Okay. The other area is just clear seeing. Where that's wisdom, where we're just cultivating that ability to see moment to moment. So, depending on which area you're talking about, within the suttas, it's often, these five hindrances are often talked about with these absorption states or with jhanas. And the way that it's languaged is that when you are in an absorption state, when you are really concentrated, collected, and it's almost as though you can feel as though you're uh, you're so gathered that the external senses and everything else are diminishing that you're suppressing the hindrances. The hindrances actually disappear for a while. And this is this can be why uh, we can feel so calm and we can be a complete saint and absolutely the most wonderful, caring, loving person in the world on the cushion and then we step off and we immediately, bam, we get into an argument or whatever because... That's a temporary suppression of the hindrances when we get really concentrated and collected. Um, on the wisdom side, it's said that actually we don't eradicate the five hindrances until we've reached certain levels of uh, awakening. And so they're different for each of the hindrances, but that there are these levels of awakening that will then eradicate them. Um, so the short answer is that they're not going to go away, but the idea is that when we study them and we know them, we don't get ensnared by them. And if we are ensnared, we get loose more quickly. So then we learn how to skillfully work with them because they're part of the human condition. And what's the last one for the uh, That's a good question. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and I don't remember off of the top of my head. I have to, there's, actually there are a couple of them that don't go away until you reach, in, in this tradition, Arhanship. So, and there are actually, I believe, two, maybe three of them that don't go away until that state. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Rich. I'm uh, I, I used to play fast with this guy uh, who uh, uh, went to training sessions all the time, and uh, he was pretty good. He wasn't a good player, and uh, he really, really wanted to beat me there. <laughs> and uh, he never really could. He didn't want to do he cheated. But he used to do this thing where if he, if he hit a shot, uh, even if he did the point, if he didn't think he did it right, he would throw his racket down on the court. Mm-hmm. So it bounced up to the sky. Mm-hmm. And he'd hunch himself over and, and, and clench his fists and scream, Relax, God damn it. Yep. When I come to the common ground and then uh, meditate myself yep. uh, and having lived for a while elsewhere in the world, you know, I think it's, it's important for people to be mindful of the fact that um, uh, our culture, our part of the world, uh, has been given the gift or the idea of original sin. Mm. This doesn't exist everywhere. Mm. Uh, we are raised to believe that we are bad mm. by nature, and we require something outside of ourselves, a force greater than ourselves, to save us. Mm-hmm. This is not something taught to people in Buddhist countries, for example. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes out of this um, is this kind of perfectionism, this kind of relaxed, goddammit attitude. And, uh, you know, I think it really is helpful if people realize that, um, you know, you don't have to remember to breathe. Mm. You don't have to think about keeping your heart beating. Mm. And you can relax and meditate without trying to be perfect. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful comment. And... So relax, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that can be the mantra. <laughs> but that uh, that is... Um, a manifestation of doubt, which is that when we have this sense of unworthiness, of not being good enough, that's doubt about ourselves. I mean, we are directing that, and if we're taught that, then we can have that um, 
Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It can be internalized oppression towards ourselves. It can be all, all sorts of things. Yeah, that's beautiful. Before we disperse, let's take a moment to just uh, what's referred to as dedicating the merit. So we're going to let the words go, and I'm going to ring the bell a few times. And as I ring the bell, just imagine that our time together tonight, that our practice and our discussion of really sharing and learning from one another is for the benefit of all beings, and that may it be a drop in the great ocean of understanding and love, and may it be of assistance and aid to all those who are servicing uh, other beings and of help and of aid to this world. So thank you, and I wish you a wonderful evening.